Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This week on EU Confidential. We have created the best Europe there has ever been. I would absolutely defend that statement, but now it's very seriously under threat, and particularly to ask young Europeans to mobilize to defend it. What can the triumphs and tragedies of post war Europe tell us about its future? Today, British historian Timothy Garton Ash with his perspective on the struggles past and present shaping Europe today. From Russia's war in Ukraine. It's one damn crisis after another. The refugee crisis, the beginning of the Russo-Ukrainian war, the Eurozone crisis, Brexit, Trump, Covid, all the way down to the largest war in Europe since 1945 to the prospects of new countries eventually joining the EU. The key to the future of this question will, of course, be Germany. If Germany actually commits to, if you like, a new Ostpolitik, a new Europapolitik, a real strategy over decades of both the widening and deepening of the European Union, that will really transform the agenda of European politics and also, of course, mean that Germany is even more at the centre than it is already. That's coming up later in the episode. But first, we'll bring you the latest on Qatargate. That's the scandal involving an alleged bribery ring that engulfed the European Parliament late last year. And how Greek MEP and former Vice President of the European Parliament, Eva Kaili, finds herself under fresh scrutiny as part of another investigation. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Politico's Chief Brussels Correspondent. And to help us unpack all of this in more depth, we're joined by politics reporter Eddie Wax. Great to have you on the show, Eddie. Great to be here. Great, it's been a while, but remind us, who is Eva Kaili? So Eva Kaili is a Greek MEP. She was, until Qatargate exploded, uh, the Vice President of the European Parliament, one of 14. And she's now living in under house arrest, uh, just a stone's throw from the actual parliament itself, having spent several months in prison, charged with corruption and money laundering and um, participating in a criminal organisation by the Belgian authorities. 
And this was the scandal that broke just before Christmas, where we heard about bags of cash and allegations of bribes coming from uh, third countries, allegedly Qatar being one of them. But there now is another angle to this. You've been reporting on this this week, new allegations now facing uh, the Greek MEP. Exactly. Well, really, there's Qatar Gate. We've got to put that to one side. And the, everybody has to understand this is completely separate to Qatargate, but it's still about Evakaili. So it's the same person who's facing a separate criminal investigation. And this time it's about the way that she used her budget as an MEP, the money that she gets from the European Union for being an MEP and possibly suspected fraudulence in the way that she actually handed out money to some of the assistants, to four assistants that worked for her between 2014 and 2020. So this is really interesting, Eddie, in that there's a whole new front now opened up, a, a probe into how assistants are employed and paid. I mean, being here in Brussels, we know that each MEP has many assistants. They have assistants in their home countries. They have assistants in Brussels. You travel down to Strasbourg with them. And there are hundreds of people, thousands, in fact, that work for MEPs. So this could be quite consequential. I think we could be at the cusp of a really deeper look at some of these questions. But I think that this is not the first time this has happened. Many other famous former MEPs have uh, been facing similar kinds of cases. And actually, uh, the French far-right leader Marine Le Pen was ordered to pay back €300,000, roughly, in, uh, in missing funds because uh, of the way that she employed uh, a parliamentary assistant. But there's, there's been several cases like this in the past of politicians from all across the political spectrum. And, you know, only time will tell now whether Eva Kiley is found uh, to have actually done the things that she's alleged to have done. What is she alleged to have done with this? What are the specific allegations? So there are three separate allegations that are facing Eva Kiley. So in this document that um, my colleague Nectaria and I got hold of, it says that there's first of all, there's a lot of suspicion about whether her employees were really in the place that they're meant to be, i.e. in the parliament, and whether they were really working the hours that she said they were. Secondly, there's a allegation that she orchestrated these fake trips for which the MEP assistants could claim back some money from the parliament. And then there's also the third allegation, which to me looks even more serious, that she actually dipped her hand into those expenses and took a cut for herself. And not only that, but she also took a cut of the MEP assistant salaries that she was paying. So what specifically is Kylie saying in response to these allegations? So through two of her, her lawyers, Sven Mary and uh, Michalis Dimitrakopoulos, they came out with a statement and really, really pushing back hard, saying that this is completely uh, defamatory, that all of this kind of stuff about recouping money that may have been you know, misspent or kind of not accounted for entirely is very normal. But the whole thing that they're trying to say is that the fact that this became a criminal um, investigation, as opposed to simply a kind of accountancy checkup, is politically motivated. So I'm just going to read from the statement which they send. It says, it is obvious that some forces acting with malicious political motives attempt to criminalise standard administrative procedures of the European Parliament as they realise that charges against me concerning the known case are falling apart. So they're claiming that because the Qatargate scandal on the one hand is kind of calming down and they're running out of oxygen there, other political enemies of Kylie are trying to pump oxygen into this separate scandal. 
And there's also another MEP who has been named by the European Public Prosecutor's Office. Exactly. And that's what is a little bit strange about this. It seems like uh, Eva Kaili's fate here is slightly being bundled together with another Greek MEP, but actually a Greek MEP, Maria Spiraki, who is from a completely different political family. She is from the EPP, from the National uh, Party in Greece, New Democracy. So she's a completely different politician to Eva Kaili and would be on the other side of the political fence as her. But their case is... Uh, which are rather similar, are being dealt with by the European prosecutor in the same file. This is not a good look for the Parliament generally, particularly when we're a year out from European Parliament elections. It's not a good look for the European Parliament. Uh, It's already reeling from this Qatargate scandal. And I think that uh, really there is a risk that if there is fraud to be found here, and it is an if, because of course, you know, their immunity needs to be lifted and then you know, then it would need to be an actual criminal investigation, that there is a risk that this could prove even more damaging to the European Parliament as an institution. You mentioned there, Eddie, parliamentary immunity, and that's one of the issues swirling around this whole case involving Kylie. Now, regular listeners to the podcast know that each week we decode an aspect of Brussels speak. So let's try parliamentary immunity. Explain to us that concept and, and what it means. So each MEP has a sort of special veil of protection that uh, stands over them when they're an MEP. And it's really intended not to let them commit whatever crimes they want, but really just to let them be free as MEPs. They should be able to stand up in the European Parliament and say basically whatever they like. And realistically, we do hear them saying all manner of wacky things. But they should also be protected from being arbitrarily prosecuted for the actions they take when they're MEPs and for the things they say. That's basically what it is in a nutshell. But that means it does make it more difficult when there are genuine concerns and allegations against them of suspicious criminal, potentially criminal activities that they can't simply be prosecuted straight away, of course, because they have this immunity. So therefore, there's a whole procedure which needs to be done, which can take weeks, it can take months, in which the other MEPs have to decide and vote on whether to lift the immunity of these MEPs. So, Eddie, where do you see both these investigations going, these two separate ones, Qatargate and then this other European Public Prosecutor's Office probe into the payment of MEPs' assistance? Well, on the first one, Suzanne, on Qatargate, it's interesting that we really haven't seen any new arrests of any MEPs or any people connected to Qatargate since February. So that's, you know, two, three months ago. And on the second question, on the European Public Prosecutor's probe into alleged misuse of funds by Eva Kiley and Maria Spiraki, they are still trundling through the Parliament. So the process for lifting their immunities are at different stages. Spiraki's one is a little bit more advanced. Kylie's one this week on Tuesday, the MEPs in the Legal Affairs Committee had their very first meeting about this, obviously behind closed doors. We couldn't find out very much about what happened. But uh, you know, there could be a moment where Kylie has gets a chance to come to Parliament and actually explain herself, although... As she's under house arrest, I'm not sure how that would actually happen. Maybe she could zoom in or something. (laughs) Well, look, we'll await developments in that case. Thanks for bringing us up to date, Eddie. Thanks, Suzanne. Now, let's turn to our interview this week. A conversation with renowned author and professor Timothy Garton-Ash. The British historian has a brand new book out. It's called Homelands, A Personal History of Europe. This book took just 50 years to write. <laughs> 50 years traveling around Europe, studying Europe, writing about Europe, worrying about Europe. And the particular impulse was a sense that my generation, which started really traveling in Europe in the early 1970s, 
had seen an extraordinary spread of freedom and democracy and enlargement of the West. I mean, think about it, 1972, most Europeans still lived under dictatorships. The European community was only six countries. The next 35 years through to, I would say, the mid-2000s, this extraordinary enlargement of freedom and enlargement of the West, from six members to 28 for the EU, and then from 2008 onwards, the global financial crisis on the one side, Putin's annexation of two chunks of Georgia on the other, it's one damn crisis after another. The book is a mixture of memoir and history. What it isn't is a book about Brussels or the EU. It's history illustrated by memoir and reportage. This is a book about the real Europe. And the real Europe is more than 40 countries, cultures, languages, histories, cities, places, individual people, right? And the EU. And the unique quality of being a European is that we can be at home abroad. I'm in Paris or Budapest or Warsaw or Tallinn. I'm clearly abroad, but I'm also at home, hence the title, Homelands. Mm. I mean, do you feel that a lot of the talk about Europe has spilled into this much more institutional idea of Europe? You know, the structures, the political structures that guide Europe, be it through the EU or different European institutions, and that we've kind of forgotten really what Europe is about. So I think... People around the edges of the European Union know that very well. I was in Kiev a few weeks ago, and there every second word is Europe. As you know, since Brexit, there's been a wave of emotion about Europe in in Britain. But I think in, so to speak, the heart of Europe, the heart of the European Union, that may indeed be the case. And there isn't this kind of emotional element and this excitement about the EU as such. Maybe the war in in Ukraine could change that. On that issue about Ukraine, I mean, we're speaking now at a very, very delicate moment in the war. And we are faced with a situation where we have war on the European continent. What do you think this war means for Europe now? And what's your assessment of where things are in this war? Well, first of all, my book starts with a big war and ends with a big war, because it starts with my father landing with the first wave on D-Day and going all the way through, fighting all the way through to northern Germany. And it ends chronologically with meeting a lovely guy called Yevgen Hulevich, cultural critic, editor, translator in Lviv at the end of last year. And just a few weeks ago, I had confirmation that he'd been killed near Bakhmut in the horrendous First World War-style battles on the last day of last year. So, I mean, it is a truly shocking fact, which exposes all the illusions of the post-1989 period, the the illusion that Europe was moving towards a kind of perpetual peace, that we no longer needed military power. So I think that's the first thing it tells us. The second thing it tells us is that Europe rarely matters to people in Ukraine in the way that, um, you know, I think it's true to say it probably mattered to people in Ireland in the 60s and 70s. There was the same sense. Europe means freedom. It means democracy. It means openness. And of course, in Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia in the 1980s and in Southeastern Europe to this day. So in a sense, it's about winning back that understanding of what Europe is really about. 
And I think actually that's also come to Brussels. I was in Brussels a couple of weeks ago, and I sensed a sort of new dynamism in Brussels because people feel, no, you know, the EU is not just about the latest regulation. This is what it's really about, securing freedom and peace. I mean, one other aspect that there has been a lot of conversation about has been the changing role of Central and Eastern European countries within the EU. Now, I know throughout your own career, you've written a lot about Central and Eastern Europe, also about your memories of 1989. I mean, how do you assess the role of those newer member states to the EU and has the Ukraine war changed that? So I'm an honorary Central European. Central European is really my formative experiences were in Germany and Poland and Czechoslovakia and Hungary. So I care about it passionately. Also, by the way, about the way in which Viktor Orban who I've known for more than 30 years, has been demolishing democracy in Hungary, a full member state of the EU. I think this sort of simplistic notion that the sort of centre of gravity of the EU is shifting eastwards has to be qualified. Clearly, the Central and East European states are very important because there's a war on just on their eastern frontiers. And so their voice in foreign and security policy is going to be more important. If the EU gets serious about eastward enlargement, Western Balkans, but particularly Ukraine, Moldova, and perhaps Georgia, there too you'll have an eastward shift. But at the same time, if you look at the big portfolios, the big issues around economy, regulation, trade, environment, and so on, it's still the larger powers and the larger economies that are calling the shots. So... It's not as simple a process as many people are suggesting, also because Central and Eastern Europe itself is is so divided. I mean, there is no larger unity between Viktor Orban and, say, Kaya Kalas in Estonia. There's a world of difference. The key to the future of this question will, of course, be Germany. If Germany actually commits to, if you like, a new Ostpolitik, a new Europa politik, a real strategy over decades of both the widening and deepening of the European Union that will really transform the agenda of European politics and also, of course, mean that Germany is even more at the centre than it is already. Do you think that the EU should or will expand eastward, that it will allow more countries to join from the east? So I think it should. Essentially, the story of the European Union over the last 50 years is one of successive enlargements, and the deepening that necessarily requires, starting with our own two countries, Ireland and Britain and Denmark, of course, in 1973, Spain, Portugal, Greece, Scandinavia, East Central Europe. And if we're serious about a notion of a European Union or Europoland free, that has to include these European countries. Whether it will, I think, is a much more difficult question, because clearly that's going to mean, number one, a very demanding process for countries in the Western Balkans, a country like Ukraine and Moldova, because what we shouldn't do is fast track it and just shoot them in, because that would be bad for Ukraine and bad for the EU. So it's going to be a very demanding process. But it's also one in which resources are inevitably going to shift from the west of the continent to the east of the continent. And that's not something that countries in the west of the continent are going to like. So I think it's going to be a long, hard road. But 
do remember the first great eastward enlargement was also a long, hard road. It took 17 years after 1989 before we got to the enlargement, including Bulgaria and Romania in 2007. So if it happens, and I hope it will, it's going to be a long, difficult process. And I suppose part of that discussion about that wave of enlargement to the east is the fact that some countries in Central and Eastern Europe have displayed this more of an authoritarianism. I mean, you mentioned Viktor Orban and the blaming Brussels mentality. And I think that perhaps, you know, has put some people off the idea of enlargement, saying, well, these countries joined and some of them are not living up to EU values. I mean, are you concerned, you mentioned Orban, for example, but about those trends, and I know we can't generalise, um, but trends we've seen in Poland and Hungary towards a more authoritarian and, in fact, an anti-EU kind of stance? So listen, Georgia Maloney would in many ways be quite at home in Poland. And Marine Le Pen would be quite at home in Hungary. And Nigel Farage too. So it is simply wrong. It's a reflection of that old phenomenon that I call intra-European Orientalism, the condescension of Western Europe to Eastern Europe, to believe these are uniquely East European phenomena. There are phenomena that are happening all over the continent in different varieties, right? And ideologically, you know, our own nationalist populists have a huge amount in common with Polish or Hungarian nationalist populists. The difference is that specifically in Hungary, democracy has actually been destroyed. I mean, I think it's really important to say clearly, Hungary is no longer a democracy. Most political scientists would say it's a competitive authoritarian system. And that has happened inside the EU and with the help of billions of European taxpayers' money. And for me, that's the heart of the challenge. It's not so much the ideology or the the various features you were talking about. It is specifically the demolition of democracy. Orban would love to make it about the ideology because then he's got allies all over Europe. Mm. But as I say there to that point, I suppose countries like Italy or indeed Britain, perhaps maybe have the guardrails to ensure that democracy is not destroyed the way it has happened in Hungary, for example. Yeah, yeah, but not because Hungary is a quote-unquote East European, or rather more accurately a Central European country, but because it had 40 years of communism, which all the institutions of liberal democracy, free market, rule of law, etc., were simply destroyed, so that you only had a few years to rebuild them. Hence, these institutions are much more fragile. But you're absolutely right. You know, Britain is still a democracy, but no longer a member of the EU. Hungary is a member of the EU, but no longer a democracy. On Brexit, how do you assess the British relationship with Europe now, post-Brexit? 55% of the Brits in the YouGov polling say it was a mistake to leave the EU. And 55% of the Brits are right. (laughs) But... I mean, almost all the negative consequences, economic, social, loss of influence, loss of soft power, reduction of ties with the continent, impact on our science, our universities, all those negative consequences that we foretold are actually coming about. So it's been a disaster. But it's happened, and it's still only 55%, so that the name of the game for the next, I would say, four or five years is to 
improve relations as far as possible, to get as good a re- as relations as possible, both with other European countries individually and particularly with the EU, because that's the thing that the Johnson and Trust governments simply weren't prepared to talk about, is having these relations with the EU. That's beginning to happen. It will happen more after the next election, particularly if we get a Labour government. And then I would say in the second half of the next parliament, so late 2020s, if things go well on both sides of the channel, the Brits will start to ask themselves the question, is that it? Just these little incremental improvements Or don't we want to talk about something larger, more strategic, single market, customs union, whatever it may be? So I think watch this space and let's come back in 2028 and see where we are. Do you think Britain will ever rejoin? I would love it to. The condition for that, but because we're never going to get the really sweet deal we had in our membership where... In a sense, Britain had its cake and ate it because, you know, it wasn't in the Eurozone, it wasn't in Schengen, it wasn't in those bits that many Brits didn't like. Because institutionally, the offer is going to be much more demanding. EU membership has got to look as overwhelmingly attractive as it did to Britain and Ireland in the 1970s or to Poland and Czechoslovakia in the 1990s, right, or to Ukraine today. So, but at the same time, I, as a, you know, as a Brit, can't want my own country to do really badly. So my formula is, I want Britain to do very well, and the EU to do even better. And if that comes about, in other words, if there's a differential where EU membership really looks so overwhelmingly attractive, then I think it's possible that, you know, somewhere in the early to mid 2030s, the question might be posed. I would love us to get to that point. To be honest with you, as a historian and an analyst, I kind of doubt it, alas, that we will, because I doubt that the differential will be so big between Britain's performance and that of the EU to make it overwhelmingly attractive for a clear majority of Brits to come back, so to speak, with our tails between our legs. Stay with us as Timothy Garton-Ash reveals his view of President Emmanuel Macron and France's role in the EU. Like every French president, he, in a sense, is always drawn back to the Euro-Gaulist vision, the vision of a Europe which is not just distinct from the United States, but an alternative pole to the United States. And whether there are reasons to feel optimistic about the future of Europe, despite all the strains and challenges of today. It's difficult to conclude that things are likely to get better. But that intellectual pessimism is actually quite a good starting point for the optimism of the will. Stay with us. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Just turning to France, you write about France saying, in fact, France has a tendency to think it is Europe. How do you assess the role of France and President Macron at the moment? In many ways, people see him and maybe he sees himself as a kind of uncrowned monarch of Europe, uh, to coin a phrase. But how do you assess France's role in the EU at the moment? I mean, for many years, I've felt that Macron stands out as someone amongst European leaders who is trying to think strategically about the future of Europe. And great credit to him for that. I think the trouble is almost, as we saw in that interview on his way back from China, that he has too many ideas or visions about Europe. So what he's referring to here is an interview the French president did with political's Jamil Anderlini on the way back from his recent trip to China. The interview made waves in Europe and the US for many reasons, including Macron's statement that Europe should avoid being America's follower and his comments on Taiwan. Like every French president, he, in a sense, is always drawn back to the Eurogolese vision, the vision of a Europe which is not just distinct from the United States, but an alternative pole to the United States. In that interview, he actually talks about a third pole of a multipolar world. And as we've seen in the reaction to that interview, you cannot unite Europe on that basis. The Eurogolist version, Europe versus the United States, is always going to split Europe down the middle. It happened over the Iraq war. It happened in the reaction to Macron's remarks. So what we actually need is a vision of lower puissance, of increasing European power, which we desperately need, particularly with the prospect of a Donald Trump victory, but increasing European power in a strategic partnership with the United States and not in opposition to the United States. And if only France would be prepared to support that, such a vision, such a strategy, it would be a very important player. Although, of course, let's have no illusions about this. Germany is Europe's central power today. Germany is the most powerful and most important country in Europe. That is a fact which France, indeed, understandably, finds a little difficult to accept. Do you think that's changed since even under Olaf Scholz? I mean, Merkel was such a, a prominent, dominant figure in Europe. No, I think it's a economic, geographical, historical fact, which, in fact, it's, it's not so much about personalities. The coinage of the term die Zentralmacht Europas goes back to a German historian, Hans-Peter Schwarz, in the 1990s after German unification. So I think it's as it were, a structural fact. And eastward enlargement has, of course, already shifted the center of gravity, if you like, from Paris to Berlin. So the real question is not, is Germany the central power, but is it going to step up to the plate? Is it actually going to take that power and responsibility seriously 
and show leadership actually and come up with a and implement a strategic vision and there one has to have some doubts. Mm, the idea of, of a reluctant leader. Just your final thoughts then on the future of Europe. Are you feeling anyway optimistic? I mean, obviously the bloc, as you said, there is going through these multi-crises and has been uh, for some time. But where is the optimism or where do you see the possibilities for Europe now? So my formula is the one often attributed to Antonio Gramsci, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. If you look at it just coolly, at all the problems we've been talking about, internal to Europe, and then add to that the challenges for non-Western great powers. Above all, China, obviously, the fact also that countries like India and Turkey have not been taking our side in the war in Ukraine, as we see very clearly. Um, Many of them still have very good relations with Russia. The huge challenges of climate change and mass migratory pressures. Analytically, You know, it's difficult to conclude that things are likely to get better. But that intellectual pessimism is actually quite a good starting point for the optimism of the will. What we got right in the 1970s was that we recognized how deep our problems were. And things looked pretty bleak for Europe in the 1970s. And then we tackled those problems. And that led us to the great upward turn from the 1980s onward. What we got wrong in the early 2000s was we had an unfounded intellectual optimism. Everything was going to go on going so wonderfully well, the Eurozone, European constitution, enlargement, relations with Russia, and then, of course, everything went pear-shaped. So I think that combination of a sober understanding of just how serious the internal and external challenges are with a determination and optimism of the will is actually the best we can hope for. And what I particularly hope for, because the story of Europe is a story of uh, particular political generations, is that the generation of young Europeans, what might be called the 22ers, those shaped by the impact of the war in Ukraine, will give new impetus and dynamism to the European project. Timothy Gartnash, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Great pleasure. And that's all the time we have for today. So be sure to follow or subscribe to EU Confidential wherever you're listening so that you never miss an episode. And do keep those ideas and feedback coming. You can email us at podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style at politico.eu This week's episode was produced and edited by our executive producer for audio Christina Gonzalez with assistance from Zoe Bass I'm Suzanne Lynch See you next week <laughs>